Why don't you guys turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And I'm going to start reading in verse 6. I'm going to read down to verse 15. I think the program says verse 12, but we're going to, we're going to go through 15. These are the Lord's words through the Apostle Paul. He says, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Let's pray. God, we approach uh, your word um, with trepidation uh, and humility, and we ask, God, that you would be present, enabling us to understand and to see clearly what it is you are revealing about yourself and the kinds of people that you have created us to be. I pray that you would place your son Jesus, who lived as generously as anyone could ever live, place him before us, that we would see him and want to exalt in him and become more and more like him uh, through our study of your word this afternoon. Uh, Be with me, help give me clarity and wisdom, brevity when we need it, um, and just bless our time together in your presence, Jesus. We love you. Amen. So, uh, life mentioned, the last message of the devotional, I guess you could say, on Thanksgiving was called uh, generous gratitude. I don't know if I actually tell you guys all the time what the sermon title is. Sometimes it just helps me kind of organize and connect the dots. That was called generous gratitude. We considered how true gratitude, as we read of it in that one Samaritan leper, the one out of ten that was healed by Jesus, that one who recognized that God had healed him, returned to the source of that grace, and he lavished his gratitude on Jesus, his healer. And in that moment, he proved that he possessed a faith that not only healed his body physically, but ultimately brought him salvation. Now, I don't actually think sermons always need titles, but this one is called Grateful Generosity. Last week was Generous Gratitude. This one is Grateful Generosity. Generosity is connected to gratitude, as we'll see. Because to be truly, genuinely generous is the immediate consequence of recognizing that all you have is grace. That all you have Anything that you would ever even be tempted to call your own is something that has been given to you. So by way of introduction, we should step into this topic of generosity and ultimately giving by recognizing that unless you understand, unless you have personally experienced the saving grace of God, 
that eternal gift of God's own life, his own son given for you, his perfect life and his innocent death, all for you, though you deserved none of it. Unless you have received and claimed that gift, then it is likely that the principles we'll explore today and the things that I might say will only sound like another pastor or another church asking for money. But the one who acknowledges that they belong to God shouldn't have to go far to immediately recognize that their wallets belong to God as well. As does their time, as does their talents, their job, their house, their children, their whole life. This idea, what we're talking about, is really not about the specifics, although we'll try to get specific. It's about the kind of heart that God puts in you when your old self dies and the new life of Christ takes you over. When G.K. Chesterton was asked to write a column on what is wrong with the world, he famously wrote back, Dear Sirs, I am G.K. Chesterton. I don't know if he signed his name that way, but G.K. is probably something cool like that. He recognized really that all the world's sin and evil can be explained by the constant and inescapable gravity of self. We are bent inwards all the time. And I wonder, actually, if you couldn't trace the source of every great evil in the world to a, a moment, maybe even a singular moment, when one person thought, what about me? Can't you see that stain of, like, what about me everywhere? It's all around us. The what about me heart is the one that gets replaced when the old life dies and we're given a new heart. And so, among other things, when we look up, think about what it's going to be like to be with the Lord in heaven forever, this is the first thing I think of. Heaven is going to be a place when there is no what about me. When there is no gravity of self. When we actually are unencumbered and able to live freely and completely outward in every possible way. We'll never have that instinct to turn in and protect self, gratify self, look out for self. We will live entirely outward without restraint and without that nagging gravity of self-love and self-indulgence and self-preservation. Self will be gone, and all we'll have left is the joy of delighting and glorying in God and in others. And we'll do it ultimately with what we'll call unrestrained generosity. Because generosity is essentially the opposite of what about me. Generosity is what about them? It's giving, okay? So we should, I understand that even just saying some of these things, we're tiptoeing into something that is historically difficult for either people to hear or for pastors to talk about. So I want to just make a few um, preliminary observations about the context. I don't want to pluck out this one thing and then try to give you principles of giving or generosity just from this. I want to make sure that we're putting it in its proper context. This passage in, in chapter 9 is really, obviously it's part of a whole letter that Paul writes to the church, uh, but it's particularly part of a larger encouragement that begins back in chapter 8. And what's happening is a large collection of money is being gathered from among Gentile churches, so non-Jewish churches, to be brought back to Judea and Jerusalem to help the poor, persecuted Jewish Christians uh, that are suffering in that place. And so a, a whole bunch of things that we could discuss here. One thing we have to say is that, at least in this context, what Paul's writing about here, it's about money. Money is at the center of all that he's discussing here. Now, obviously, generosity isn't only about money, and we'll see that. He actually he talks, talks about this a little bit. But what Paul doesn't do is he doesn't lay out the principles of generosity and then hope that when they mature enough and eventually they'll start to give as they understand generosity and adopt a generous heart. He actually uses the, the assumption 
ultimately, that they are giving. And that money is at the center of that. To, to lay out and point to the principles of generosity that govern that, but also every other area of their life. He believes, Paul does, that Jesus makes Christians generous. And he boasts about the money, ultimately, that the Macedonians give. And he uses that, that example to encourage the Corinthians to do the same. Listen to the first two verses of chapter 8. I almost thought about just pivoting and just preaching these two, these two verses because they're so cool. But he says this starting in chapter 8, in verse 1. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. How beautiful is that? How loaded is that statement? Just notice that the generosity that the Macedonians display is being called by Paul a grace of God that has been given to them. That generosity itself is not something that we sort of begrudgingly muster up in response to some obligation or a rule. It's not something Paul talks about. It's not something that we should feel like we're being coerced into or, or pressed into. Giving is ultimately an exercise and an experience of God's grace. It's something we should discipline ourselves to, to, to do because we know that in doing so, we will experience and participate in the grace of God. It's a, it's a privilege to be generous. Also, and we'll see this a little bit in the passage we'll, we'll cover, but the context, again, like I said, is, is primarily financial. And it's financial giving for the saints. Okay? Later, Paul talks specifically about this large sum of money that he's collected and he's transporting because the Macedonian Christians have been so generous and they're doing it because they care for the Jewish Christians, their brothers and sisters that they've heard are suffering. So the whole context is primarily about financial generosity and it's about giving to the church. Now, I know this is not the sermon that I'm preaching and I'm not going to camp out here, but I, I do think that it's important that this is at least in our mind's eye, as we're considering this passage and what it means to be generous. And so um, I'm going to say, hopefully the one time that I say this sort of icky feeling thing, but if, but if you're a Christian, you should be giving money. And you should be giving money to the church. Okay? Now I could qualify that up and down over and over. And in a sense, we kind of will as we go through this. Um, I know it sounds sort of icky to hear this, but I, but I actually think that the reason it kind of feels icky is because of that nagging gravity of self. And I think actually the reason I feel icky saying it is because of my own sort of nagging gravity of self. I want to preserve whatever, you know, I want to preserve the fact that as a church, we've never asked for money. It's not a thing that we make a habit of doing and, and I want to keep it that way. Um, but we should take scripture as it is. And I think that that's clear enough. Okay, so I'm okay with allowing that sort of practical question to be the thing in your mind and your heart as we explore principles of generosity that obviously expand beyond just money. Um, but I'm happy to keep that there. The last thing that I'll say, I know this is kind of a longer introduction, I'm sorry. Um, but in studying this section, even looking back in chapter 8, and just thinking through the context of this part of the letter, um, I and the leaders are challenged uniquely as well. Paul says in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 8, he says, we're taking this precaution so that no one will criticize us about this large sum that we are administering. Indeed, we are giving careful thought to do what is right, 
not only before the Lord, but also before people. Now, um, in many ways, God has entrusted us with your gifts. And that's a responsibility that we take very seriously. Paul recognized actually the need to do two things. They seem to be two separate tasks or separate um, emphasis. Paul recognized that they need to do what was right before God, which is essentially just what is right. right? God, everything is before God. He knew that they needed to do what is right, to handle that money wisely and honestly. But he also says that they need to do also what is right before men. That there's a need to do right with money and then there's a need to appear right. And to not leave ourselves open to criticism or accusation, as he says. So we need proper accountability and we need transparency. And here's kind of an initial bit of transparency right here. While we're confident that we are doing everything that is right before God when it comes to finances and things like that, we actually need to do a better job at communicating these things to you. We need better accounting and we need clear policies and processes and all those things that we just have, we've been as I've been thinking through this, we've been operating like a big family that just knows and loves and trusts each other, and, and that's been fine. Um, and, but as we grow and as, as God entrusts more of those gifts to us, we feel the pressure. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, no, this is, there's no excuse for not being good stewards and being clear communicators and having good accountability for those things, and we need to do a better job at that ourselves. So I want you to know that we are being challenged uh, in this as well, and we're, I'd say, working on that right now for the new year. Okay. So in 2 Corinthians 9, now back to our passage, chapter 9, verse 6. Paul takes this, the context of this large gift and the, exact, the example of the Macedonians' generosity, and he concludes uh, this sort of story, or so, so to speak, with uh, some principles. He says, the point is this, right? So, all right, Paul, what's the point? The point is this. And he starts by saying, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. In some ways, I kind of think that that's a bit of a header for, for most of this idea. Now, what we have to do is we've got to be careful not to turn that verse into some sort of twisted prosperity gospel. Like, what he means is that if we give some money, then we will get rich, or that we will return giving for giving in the same, in the same manner. And that's not what he's talking about. But what he is talking about is what we introduced in that first part, because that idea that giving and generosity is a grace of God. It comes from that first chapter in chapter 8. And it's recognizing that the more we give, the more we live into the generous spirit of our Christ that lives inside of us, the more we allow his generosity to live out of us, we will draw closer to God. We will understand what we have been made for, our purpose. We will live out the life of Christ more and more, and we will be blessed. That there is a reward to reap by being generous, by giving, by pouring out, by practicing the kind of life that we will live on in eternity practicing it now. And so there's this, this sort of header. It just says, look, sow bountifully. Give generously because you will reap the benefits and the rewards of those things either now or in, in the time to come. You will be blessed. You will receive and experience and know the grace of God in a way that is unique. We can talk about, I've said this before, where um, the example I always give is, I've always known that God is my father. Since I was a kid, I've always understood that principle, that idea. But it wasn't until I actually became a father that the weight and the, the reality of that, just understanding God in that way, hit differently. And it sunk in, and, and, it, and, it, and it, it just meant more. It's not that I understood anything 
new or different, no, no factual difference in it, but just the ability to experience exactly what is being said and what, what I was made for, um, made the reality of that grace of God, I think that's available to us as, as parents and fathers, more real. And so there's a sense in which we want to understand the, the grace and the generosity of our Lord Jesus, and we will understand it more when we embrace it and live it out ourselves, and we practice that kind of generosity. So here's just a few. I'm just going to run through um, four, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, I don't usually preach eight-point sermons. Um, these are just sort of quick principles. I promise we'll try to go through these quickly. Um, but just in a picture of what does that mean? What is, what is a generous heart, a generous life um, look like? But what does it embrace? It's not just, it's, it's, I don't want this just to be just practical things, but what is it that we are embracing when we try to live a generous life? Um, and so just some principles of generosity that we can kind of hold to. And the first one was what I just, we just talked about, that generosity is rewarding. We kind of already know this, right? Um, this can become twisted. This, this, uh, this itself can actually become corrupted, whereas where giving becomes a sort of self-indulgent, uh, uh, making ourselves feel good because we just, it feels good to give. That can, be, that can go wrong as well. But the principle still remains that there's something good about it. It feels, it feels good. There's something rewarding about living outward because I think we're getting closer and closer to the, the way in which we were created in perfection, to be completely and unhindered in our outward living. So generosity is rewarding. That was verse 6. Verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The principle here would be that generosity is thoughtful. Generosity is thoughtful. Ultimately, generosity is a, I just like the tension here, is a decision of the heart. Generosity is a decision of the heart. I, I, I really like that. It's not, it's not a calculated decision. It's not just a math problem in our head. It's not something that we decide based on a spreadsheet or a budget or whatever's left over after paying the important bills. Okay? But the other opposite is not true either. It's not recklessly unaware. It's not lavish without any thought, right? There is no prescription, ultimately, in the New Testament at least, about how much money or resources you should give. But I think at least this verse combines in some ways to say that two things, that you should know it and you should feel it. You should know it and you should feel it. One, generosity knows it. Because generosity is decided in the heart. It knows, I'm sorry, I know ultimately finances are usually handled by one spouse, but don't be the other spouse that has no idea exactly how generous or not generous your family is. Determine together between your hearts. Not primarily with a calculator, but with your hearts, which is the place where our wills and our pleasures and our delights ultimately collide. Determine there with each other to be generous and, to be, and how generous you should be. Okay, so it should know it. We should be aware of our giving. Now, I know in today's day and age, we can kind of set recurring things and we can kind of set it and we don't have to worry about it. And, and I don't want to say that's a bad idea because sometimes that's the only way it happens in a lot of cases. That's fine. But there's discipline yourself. Practice every month, even though it's coming out automatically, to come together for a moment and say, all right, here, here it is. It's happening. We're giving. This is the amount. This is what we've decided. Make it a moment where you're aware that it's happening. Don't, don't get lost. Oh, at the end of the year, well, I don't know how much we would give. And you get a statement and... You remember, oh yeah, we're generous, right? I know that's not how it works. Decide in your heart together. To it feels it. 
Because generosity, informed and motivated by the endless, eternal grace of God, ultimately finds real joy, real joy in giving. And not because, not because you just found a good, comfortable amount that makes you happy. Okay? The joy and the delight comes from God, which tells us something. It means that the generosity is, compels us ultimately to give enough that without that grace of God, without that grace of God, giving us joy, that we might otherwise be reluctant or unhappy. So, I'm not going to prescribe anything. There's no number. Whatever it is. If you want to know, if you, if, if you were to say, how much should I give? How much money should we be giving? How, what percentage of our, our, our income should we give? Whatever it is. I, I would say, start with, like, start, start, run up the scale, and start with a number that starts to feel a little uncomfortable. Because that's probably, I don't know, at least then you know it, and then you feel it. I'm not saying that's what it is. You, you, you use wisdom to determine, use your heart to determine what it is God's calling you to give. But it should know it, and it should feel it. And it shouldn't be that you can rely on your ability to add things up and fill a spreadsheet out well enough to make you happy. The happiness should come from God, which means it's got to overcome something inside of us that would otherwise be reluctant and grumpy about it. Third, generosity is an act of trust. Starting in verse 8. This is as if he kind of has to circle back in mind. Like it's, it's like he gave one verse that started to get a little practical. He says, now hold on. Make sure you remember, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it's written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Generosity springs ultimately from this recognition that God is gracious and that he provides sufficiently. So ultimately, that sufficiency is there to free us. It says, frees us to do good works and to live righteously without fear, ultimately, of our well-being, without worrying, just like the sparrows do. They don't worry about where their food's coming from, where their clothes are coming from. He wants us to live that kind of anxiety-free life so that we can focus on living out good works, serving and giving and loving Fourth one, generosity is uh, holistic. Okay, this is verse 11. It says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Generosity is about all of life. Now, we obviously have so much more to give than just our money. We have time. We have gifts. We have space. We have energy, we have meals, we have love. We can give an ear to another person's pain. We can give up our weekends and give up our early mornings. We can give up our autonomy. We can give up our freedom, our safety, our rights, our independence. We can give our expertise. We can give our silence, support. Everything we have, not just material things, everything that we have is from God. And so, everything we have can in some way be given for the well-being and the glory of somebody else. 
A giving person, a generous Christian, gives money, but gives more than money. They wander through life looking for people and ways that they can give themselves ultimately to the God and to their brothers and sisters and to their neighbor. They don't walk around saying, what about me? What about me? How do I preserve this? How do I hold on to this? How do I save this up? How do I do this? But what about them? What about my neighbor? What about my family? What about my brother and sister at church? What about the homeless people in our city? What about the college students? What about them? What about everybody else? It's a holistic, all of life posture. Uh, Next, generosity is attractive. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. I love that idea. And I think this goes back to what I was saying before, that at least in this context, the, the primary context here is generosity and giving to the church and to the saints in the church, but that this is where it starts and that it's actually in that place where it can be given freely and generously that it then begins to overflow. It begins to spill out and, and people see this and it, and it spills out and what it produces is it doesn't produce thanksgiving to you. It doesn't, it doesn't make you the object of their thanks. It ultimately produces thanksgiving to God that people see this life and they see that this is different And it ultimately, at the end of the line, it results in more thanksgiving, more praise for God. It's not us that are thanked when we give, but it's God who should be thanked. And it means that our generosity is an act of God's grace. It's an act of God's grace in their lives. Those that we serve and those that we give to are receiving God's grace, and they're receiving it through us. This is what we've always wanted to be as a outward great commission church we want to be the hands and feet of jesus like life said we want to be channels and conduits of god's grace you've been given much we've received an eternal amount of grace from god and it was never ever intended to end with you you were never intended to be the last link in a chain of god's grace you are to be a channel and a conduit that's the way this whole thing works and so when we give and when we serve others we are we are we we are actually giving them god's grace What a cool thing. That's attractive. I think we know those people. We've seen those people, and we want to be those people. We want to be those that are attractive for the sake of God's glory and God's thanksgiving. Uh, Generosity is gospel-shaped. Verse 13. By their approval of this service, so those who are receiving this gift of generosity, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God. There it is again because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Generosity accompanies and confirms our confession of the gospel. It's even called something like submission is another word that we're usually uncomfortable with. Generosity is ultimately not about elevating ourselves above others. It's not boasting about our resources. It's about ultimately submitting ourselves. It's about laying our resources and our our whole lives down for the ministry of the church and for the needs of the saints and the needs of others. So because generosity is that sort of submissive posture before others with with our things and with our life, it communicates the gospel. Last one, second to last one, sorry. Generosity is unifying. 
Generosity is unifying. This is a really, this is a beautiful little statement. Verse 14. Well, I got, we got to start in verse 13. So it's a continuation of that last thought. By their approval of this service, those who are receiving this gift, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Paul says ultimately that the recipients of this gift, they're going to glorify God and they're going to long for and they're going to pray for the Corinthian church because of their generosity. This sort of surpassing grace of God that they've received and that they've expressed. And it ultimately explodes with this conclusion in verse 15. It says, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. And I can't even necessarily locate what Paul is saying specifically about this gift. Is he saying it's the gift of the money that they're giving? Or is it the gift of God's grace in allowing them the privilege of giving? I don't know. It's all throughout is recognizing that God is the giver. God is the source of all that we have, all grace that we've received. And so he receives the glory. As generous as we can be, God receives the glory because generosity, this is the last one, generosity produces thanksgiving. It's sort of like this circle that you can't get out of. Thanksgiving ultimately compels us to give and to be generous. And generosity produces more thanksgiving, which produces more generosity. He said back in verse 11 that God will enrich you in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. And in verse 12, supplying the needs of the saints, but also is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. And then as we recount all this, you just can't help but conclude, but thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. So generosity, the the gospel-shaped, Jesus-like life of the Christian that has lived entirely outward, is forgetting every day as much as they can the gravity of self that holds them back and is, is turned and is allowed that self instead to die and the new life of Christ to live out of them. They understand more and more every day generosity is rewarding. Generosity is thoughtful. It knows it and it feels it. Generosity is an act of trust, ultimately, recognizing that God is the one who provides and he provides sufficiently. That it's holistic. It's, it involves our whole life, our whole posture. It certainly comes out in the way that we handle our money, but it also trickles into and it spreads into every other area of our life. It's attractive. You can almost say it's evangelistic in a way. It's gospel-shaped, and it binds us together. Someone who's been so generous to you, you've probably experienced that before, someone who's loved you so well and given to you so much that you could never repay them, but you feel this new bond this new love for them, this new desire to honor that relationship and to pray for them and to, to be with them. And it produces thanksgiving to God. So the question is, are you generous? I know as a church, we want to be a, a generous church. We want to be a generous church. Not because we want to just amass coffers of money here, but so that we can live out what it is God's called us to live out. And then we can do it without care or without second thought to whether or not God will provide. And the reality is, is he says, I will provide. And he says, I'll provide through generous Christians, generous people who will give. So that's our challenge. And I just want to make sure that we remember always Christ as 
is not just the one who has made this possible, although that's maybe the best part of this, not just the one who's made this possible, but who has shown us, first and foremost, what perfect and complete eternal generosity looks like. Talk about someone who gave up. List off all the things that he could have claimed for his own. Read Philippians chapter 2. All the things he could have claimed for his own. The glory and divinity of God's throne. And he set it aside. He was generous with his own divinity, his own glory, his own throne, giving those things up so that he could enter into all of the plight and misery and sin of our world for us. And, and then instead, give us that life and give us that righteousness. You can't, we can't match that generosity. And this is, that's what this is not about. This is not about trying to pay him back. This is trying to live out truly the life of Christ that we claim lives in us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the gift of his life and his death on our behalf. And I pray, God, that we would... Um, that we would be compelled, as Paul says, compelled by this love of Christ to minister in such a way, to allow our lives to be used in such a way that we would put the generosity of our King on display every day. That we would wander this world as sojourners looking for people to bless, looking for people to love and to serve, to give our time, to give our energy, to give our presence to. And as it challenges us in the practical day-to-day things, our money, that, that one thing that is, seems to be the most limited. I pray that we would honor you and, and recognize uh, the grace that you have given us in providing for our families and our jobs and homes and places to be and, and turn and give those things to you as well because they're all yours. We love you, Jesus. We want you to be honored in our, our midst and our presence and as we go and as we look to give, we want people to see not our generosity but the generosity of our God on display. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.